Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. We are uh, broadcasting to you here from Hell World. This is Mm -hmm. Um, we forgot, we already forgot something. Uh, I'm Julia Claire. She's Kate Willett. Yeah, it's a, man. You guys, you guys know us, whatever. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's been a really bad week for many things, but we're, you know, we're in Brooklyn and there seems to be a very big COVID surge happening here in New York City. So I don't know where you're listening from, but please stay safe wherever you're listening from. We know that a lot of our uh, listeners are in New York, so, uh, or in just like large metro areas. So, hope everybody is staying safe. I am currently waiting for COVID test results myself, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't think that I have it. I, I just like, and I'm fully vaxxed and boosted. I'm just uh, overly concerned about my ailing father. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to get my parents to my parents. I'm I'm doing shows next week in San Francisco. I mean, probably depending on what's happening. If you're in San Francisco, where I don't think COVID is as bad right now, but uh, yeah, I am going to be at the punchline there on um, <laughs> Thursday, ending the COVID situation, of course. Um, so we we'll we'll see what's happening. But my parents are trying to like to come to that show and i'm like please do not come yeah yeah uh yeah um, what but yeah it's really fucked up especially because it's like uh i think that there's like an epidemic of covid in the comedy community right yes. now yeah. yes there certainly is <laughs> yeah um yeah well you know uh it makes sense because you know everyone was like you know, pretty much every comedian I know is fully vaxxed, if not also boosted, but... Except for, uh, well, no, I'm not going to say her name. No. There are a few, there are a few anti with a, with a few With a few notable exceptions, but, yeah. pre- but most of the comedians that you and I would be interacting with, I think it's fair to say, um, are, we're taking the necessary precautions in terms of getting vaxxed and uh, definitely, like, not as many people are boosted, Uh uh only 17 the reports say that only 17 percent of americans are boosted which i didn't know until today and that is well they just um i mean they just allowed everyone to get boosted like what what was it like three four weeks ago that they announced that it was people were able to i guess i don't know that's when i got yeah i got mine right before thanksgiving just as i was going yeah home um but yeah it's a it feels so weird. It just feel it, you know. There are a lot of ways in which it feels like this time last year. Yeah. Except I know, I, mean, I know it's not. I know that that's like an over dramatization of what's going on. That's being hyperbolic, but because, but it's just. Yeah, 120,000 new cases a day for the last like four or five days, which is. 40% more than two weeks ago, a 40% increase. It's just stressful. 
Yeah, no, it is really stressful. And um, I mean, it's, you know, with the vaccine, uh, way less people are becoming seriously ill or dying that are vaccinated. So, mm-hmm. so good to keep that in mind. Uh, it is. Yeah. And I don't want to be overly, obviously, I don't want to be overly alarmist. Like, even honestly, which I, again, I don't think I have, but even if I had, uh, if, if it turns out that I have COVID right now, which again, I don't think I do, but it, even if I do, it would not, it would be, it would not be serious for me at all. I would not even risk like a hospitalization. I would not, it would not be more than like maybe a bad cold for me, according to every epidemiologist, because I'm vaxxed and boosted. Um, and my, I got my booster like a month ago. Um, so yeah, um, I'm trying to keep that in mind while also uh, spinning out over here. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm just really hoping that we don't have to go back into a full quarantine situation because yeah. I simply cannot adopt any more cats. I am <laughs> I'm full up with little Albert you, and little Pearl. You know, we but we both are, and don't think that I haven't still been looking through the rescue websites because I absolutely have. I am on, um, yeah, I, I subscribe to like a, a lot of different kitten content. Oh yeah, on, uh, it's really dangerous. Twitter, Insta, <laughs> and even Reddit. I don't really go on Reddit that much, but there, I had to start going on there because there's so many good uh pets on reddit and also the anti-work subreddit is really good have you ever seen that one so, no but you were you were telling me i think you were telling me about this last week oh the anti-work sorry. the anti-work yeah, subreddit but you also have introduced me to like pets reddit which i didn't know existed either and that's i mean that's using reddit for good in my in my estimation yeah, I mean, I've definitely made fun of Reddit like many, many, many times, but depending on what you're doing on there, like it can be good. Like there's definitely a lot of good pet advice. Um, you know, there's a the, the, the vegan Reddit is Oh no. Insane. No, I I, I don't want that. I don't want to go within I mean, I yeah, I I, I don't want to be in within a mile of vegan Reddit as a vegan. Vegan, <laughs> vegan Reddit is like People, so I I have browsed the vegan Reddit and the vegan Reddit they call everyone who eats meat a carnist, um, and the topics on there are like, should I stop talking to my family for refusing to go vegan? Should I leave my partner? Like it's really 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 hardcore, you know. And even like I those I are the ones those are the ones who flood my mentions when whenever I I tweet something that they they don't like and they're like you're not actually vegan you're just whole food plant-based i'm like okay (laughs) what's the difference wait so like you can you cannot eat any animal products and then not be vegan yeah according to according to them um it's like whole food plant-based or whatever or just plant-based is you're doing it for dietary reasons and vegan is you're doing it for ethical reasons um and yeah 
I'm going to go ahead and say, um, <laughs> if you don't eat any animal products whatsoever, you're vegan. Wow, Kate, get ready to get canceled by vegan Reddit. Uh, man, I don't want to get canceled by the vegans. I really don't. I really, really, really don't. <laughs> Um, I, I'm becoming increasingly Whole Foods plant-based myself, not really Whole Foods. I know it's shop at Whole Foods, actually. I'm not a, you know, I don't I don't think that I'm going to take down Amazon uh, by not. No, no, no. Whole Foods. Wait, is I can't tell if you're joking or not, but Whole Foods no, is I, not. That's not referring to the store. It's referring to like um, not eating like a lot of processed foods. Oh, I thought like that it was whole like plant foods. I thought that it was like making fun of like bougie plant based people. Oh, yeah. It's like it's like the vegan equi equivalent of a white feminist. Oh, gotcha. I guess. No. So I don't. Yeah, I, I am. I am eating a primarily plant based diet these days. Yeah. Not always, but primarily, um, which feels like the most that I can do personally because I eat on the road a lot. And oh yeah, it's I don't, murder out out there. Yeah, it is I don't want to. I mean, you're I don't make peanuts. Excuses. Yeah, for like, you know, I know that. Um, I know that uh, people are vegan in all places, but for myself personally, I find it really hard to like get food when I travel. Mm -hmm. that, but I am eating a lot of plant based food at home, and I am feeling really, really good. So yeah, great. Um, but. Uh, you know, it's a, I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll go back into quarantine and have a chance to um, be uh, getting really into cooking again. I'm not sure. Let's see what's happening. Um, and if we go back into quarantine, we'll also have a chance to relitigate the 2016 election. <laughs> I am so tired of people relitigating the 2016 election. The the Susan Sarandon psychos. Okay, oh, I, I can't. I can't I deal with it. I understand people being mad about like Susan Sarandon. Like, She's just one lady with great tits. Leave her yeah, alone. After I mean, like right after the 2016 election. Okay, like obviously she wasn't really to blame, but I understand everyone was sort of taking out their frustration on all different people, and it wasn't really rational. But like six years later, blaming it's Susan so Sarandon, crazy. It's like you've thought about this. <laughs> like, run the numbers, and you've decided that it is Susan Sarandon's fault, and it, it just really shows like a. I know a, a very minimal understanding of of politics, but that a bunch first, of people did an did a no growth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really stupid. Um, but the other the other stupid lib thing that I want to talk about for just a second, um, believing that Susan Sarandon caused the uh, caused Trump to be elected is is dumb. But it's not nearly as dumb as advocating for people who or have not been vaccinated to uh, not have their health insurance cover COVID treatment or hospitalization. This really makes me mad that people are advocating for uh, COVID to not be covered. I mean, it's just, first of all, we want everyone to have health care. And mm -hmm. second of all, I think that uh, you got to be a real dum-dum to not see how giving insurance companies the power to not cover people based on whatever health decisions that they make like, is going to be a real slippery slope that mm -hmm. can pretty easily include things like smoking and dietary choices and substance use. And it's like, 
I definitely think that everyone should get vaccinated. I even support vaccination mandates in most cases, Mm -hmm. but like just not covering people getting treatment for COVID. First of all, it's sadistic. And second of all, it's really short-sighted. And I've been seeing this more and more. Kroger, they're not the CEO of Kroger, probably not a lib. I don't know, but <laughs> you are a, a, an evil Republican. But woke king CEO of Kroger. Yeah, but uh, this week um, they announced that um, unvaccinated people would no longer receive sick leave if they get COVID, which seems like a very good way to get people who have COVID to come into work and spread it to everyone. Yeah, uh, not just their coworkers. But also all the people shopping at Kroger. This yeah. Is, I mean, it's just these are very uh, some of the measures being put forward here, very short sighted, very punitive, um, not going to do anything to stop the spread of COVID and really just going to result in, in more money for corporations. And uh, yeah, it's it's dumb, really dumb and evil. Yes. It's very bad. Um, everything's bad. We did want to touch on yet another bad story. <laughs> yeah. So, we're um, talk so for a minute. okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry about that. There have been a lot of developments since you and I last spoke here in the U.S. Um, there was a terrible uh, tornado that wreaked kind of unimaginable destruction in Kentucky in particular. Um, so if we have any listeners there, I hope that you're okay and you're safe. I uh, I checked in with our friends, Tom and Terrence, the Trailbillies. You do. They, uh, yeah, they said that they, they're okay. Uh, they, they avoided the worst of it. Um, but in the next chapter of the hell world that Kel, uh, Kate described, we, uh, you know, there there are reports now that a, an Amazon delivery driver um, was ordered to keep working through the tornado warnings or she'd lose her job. And the, um, and the text messages have been published um, Basically, there are all these messages from her saying radios keep going off. Uh, and her boss says, OK, just keep delivering. We can't just call people back for warning unless Amazon tells us to do so. Yeah. We, eight workers died. Eight yeah. warehouse workers died. And also six people died at a candle factory in Kentucky. And and all of these people died because their employers would not let them leave work. Yeah. So it goes on. Uh, This was reported in Bloomberg today in Bloomberg News. Uh, Tornado alarms going off over here. This is continuing the text messages. Her boss says, just keep delivering for now. We have to wait for word from Amazon. Uh, If we need to bring people back, the decision is ultimately up to them. I will let you know if the situation changes at all. Shelter in place for now. I just got word from Amazon. Give it about 15 or 20 minutes and then continue as normal. I will let everyone know if that changes. And then she says, how about for my own personal safety, I'm going to head back. Having alarms going off next to me and nothing but locked buildings around me isn't sheltering in place. That's waiting to turn this van into my casket hour left of delivery time and if you look at the radar the worst of the storm is going to be right on top of me in 30 minutes 
Uh, and then her boss says, if you decide to come back, that choice is yours. But I can tell you it won't be viewed as for your own safety. The safest practice is to stay exactly where you are. If you decide to return with your packages, it will be viewed as you refusing your route, which will ultimately end with you not having a job to come to tomorrow morning. The sirens are just a warning. It's really fucked up. I mean, and it's like, you know, what do you do if you really yeah. need the money? Like if, right. you, if you can't afford to feed yourself or pay rent, I mean, most people in this country are like one paycheck away from homelessness or not yeah. being able to eat. And it's like, you know, this is, I mean, it's just absolutely unconscionable that the these people were sacrificed so that one of the richest men in the entire world, possibly even the richest, no, Elon Musk is the richest, I yeah. guess. I don't know. But so one of the richest men in the world can make more money. Um, it's just, it, it's absolutely, it's absolutely appalling. Speaking of Elon. <laughs> I just want to say really quick before we switch to Elon that I don't think that there's, you know, there's no clearer case for unions. And um, obviously, you know, Amazon has tried to do everything possible that they can to prevent their workers from unionizing, um, surveillance, changing yeah. stoplights, throwing away ballots for a union vote. I mean, they have just really, they've, they've pulled out all the stops because they don't want their workers to have power. And unions do give workers power. And, um, you know, there is a resurgent labor movement in this country, but, you know, all of the all of the protections that workers have now basically are a result of uh, unions a long time ago, you know, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, let, let's let's hope that workers keep organizing and, um, you know, de defeat these these evil corporations because we're just seeing like the, the price. Uh, the price for not having unions is, is just it's it's too high. It's too high. Yeah. Um yeah. I I actually think going back to the I, I think one of the good things that that came out of the the ashes of the twenty sixteen election is that you know a lot of the people who lost faith in electoral politics did kind of refocus their efforts towards labor organizing not everyone certainly there are certain people who of course just like kind of gave up and <laughs> all right um but i mean i gave up but not politically just <laughs> some of us just gave up and had a lot of sex i don't know <laughs> sometimes that's the only way it's the season of giving up um yeah. but I do think that the continued resurgence and um, expansion of labor organizing and unionization in this country is the brightest spot in what is otherwise a very bleak political landscape. Um, but before we go, I do want to... 
once again, give a have another reply guy of the week. I have one. Are you talking about our boy Elon, or is it someone else? I'm, I sure am. I'm, okay. of course, talking about it because Elon was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And the head of the corporation that owns Time Magazine is like a personal investor in Tesla. So sure whatever i mean not times person like not to be too uh facile about it but you know hitler was once named times person of the year uh yeah they always say that it's like supposed to be like oh well it's not necessarily a good person yeah fuck you elon musk doesn't need any more recognition or publicity and also i'm just i'm just not entirely sure what he does uh yeah he also looks like just a complete He's a complete dumbass. Like, he said that, like, <laughs> wouldn't he say that COVID was going to be over in, like, two weeks when it started? Yeah. He's um, not a smart man. He's not smart. So this week uh, on the the 13th, which I think was Monday, uh, yeah, Elizabeth Friday Warren. Felt like a Friday the 13th. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. So, so it, you know, the announcement was made on Monday that he was Times Person of the Year. And Elizabeth Warren's Twitter account tweeted, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. Uh, And then Elon Musk responded with a link to a Fox News article (laughs) saying Elizabeth Warren is a fraud. And then... um, He said, you remind me of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. Please don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. The Karen thing is so stupid because it's it's like so dumb. And the original like the the original intention of Karen was like to call out like, um, you know, it's like white white women who have. Yeah. yeah, White women who have like, I'd like to speak to the manager energy. And then. and then it got by white men to just be like why don't you shut up why don't you shut up i don't want to pay taxes i'm the rich i'm a trillionaire who doesn't want to pay taxes it's really dumb so i think that we can say now that elon musk has used karen against elizabeth warren for telling him he should pay taxes um the karen is officially dead as like when ted cruz was in on the zodiac killer joke yeah it's over we can't do it anymore I hate Elon Musk so much, and that's it. But the good news is we have a great, we have a great interview. Hell yeah! Tell week. me about it. What's going on? Okay, so I talked to um, producer, podcast producer extraordinaire Antonia Sarahito, who has produced some of the top podcasts of the year, as named by Time, the terrible the terrible publication that we just named but uh so many other um and vulture she was also named one of the top podcast producers of the year um yeah so we talk about the landscape of the podcasting space how it has changed we talk about how that intersects with labor because a lot of the um private podcast corporations have unionized like gimlet and uh, now iHeartRadio is uh, is trying to unionize. Uh, Antonia is a podcast producer for LAist, which is a subsidiary of uh, it's KPCC, which is like 
an NPR subsidiary or something. So they've been public radio has long been unionized. Uh, so we had a really interesting conversation. Antonia also gave some great recommendations for her favorite podcasts of the year. Um, I really think that a lot of our listeners would like her the podcast that she hosted uh, called Norco 80 earlier this year, which was a lot about like a, a bank heist that went terribly wrong and um, kind of how it's been misconstrued in police training um, in the years following. So it's a really interesting conversation. Antonia is super smart and she's the best. I hope you guys really like it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for, for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Happy solstice. Um, you can't say happy solstice anymore. They just want to, you know, they want to, there's a witch hunt. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> For the actual witches. You can't you can't even say happy solstice anymore. <laughs> yeah. You can't uh, you can't conduct your pagan rituals in peace. There's no more freedom. Um it isn't free. So. Uh, well, I'm I'm still going to practice my pagan rituals. Um I'm going to go snuggle with little Pearl who is my familiar spirit. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, she's oh my god, it was so funny cuz my roommate was taking care of the cats when I was out of town. Very, very nice of him. But he is like, he is like little Pearl is so conceited. Yes. <laughs> it's funny that he even he like someone, up on it. Yeah. Like she, she's just so, I don't know what a cat is like. How can a cat be conceited? I'm not sure, but uh, she is. Yeah. Oh, and also Antonia has two cats. And of course we had cat interruptions in, uh, so, you know, I think we are not only the number one leftist feminist comedy podcast, we the are the number, number one, one cat podcast, the cat podcast, podcast that yeah. intersects with leftist po- politics. This is an intersectional podcast. That's right. And that includes cats. Um, All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Very excited. I say this every week, but I am particularly excited uh, about today's guest. Uh, she is the executive producer of podcasts at LAist Studios in KPCC. And prior to that, she was a senior producer on the show Anything for Selena, the host of Norco 80, and a longtime Latino USA uh, producer on NPR. Welcome to the show, my friend and yours, Antonia Sarajito. Thanks, Julia. I'm so excited. Hi. Hello. I'm so excited. You like mentioned this to me, but like really since then, it's been me badgering you to have me on. So thank <laughs> no, it's no, it hasn't. I've been excited about the idea the whole time. And um, Antonia and I are personal friends, actual friends. Yeah, actual friends, real friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also happens to be uh, to have this like very cool job. And she is uh, just one of the more interesting people I know, um, definitely one of my dear friends. Um, <laughs> but that's not the only reason why she's on the podcast. Uh, again, I just I just read her credits. What more do you want, people? Um, so I wanted to have you on specifically this week because um, there's big news coming out of one of the um, larger p- 
private podcast producing companies, uh, iHeartRadio. Uh, so they, their podcast staff are, uh, trying to unionize. And, uh, we saw this with Gimlet. Um, that was a big, that was a big one. We've seen this with a few other. Yeah. um, Gimlet had a big push. I'm honestly like amazed that you like, you know, like that, you know about this. I mean, what's cool. I think you know about this probably more from like the union side than the like podcasting business side. (laughs) I'm assuming. Um, I don't know. I don't know because I think I just like I have a lot of friends who are in the podcast world. Sphere, yeah. Yeah. But also, yeah, I mean, I am pretty clued clued into unionization efforts, but I do think that it's also it's like a perfect intersection of my interests. It's the and, podcast union. My, it's so my, niche. My, yeah. My circles. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... I this is going to be a very meta episode. It's going to be a podcast about podcasts. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> um, very sexy. And yeah, there's a lot I wanted to talk to you about. Obviously, um, I, I think, you know, unionization and labor organizing is not unique to the podcast sphere. Um, but... No, I, it is a, it's a sign of the times. It's like, a, it it's, is, a, it's a big deal for sure. It is a big deal. And I I wonder if, because this is my theory, I'd love to hear your take on it, is if, you know, I think that podcasting has become kind of the most relevant and lucrative form of journalism uh, in the present day. And I wonder if, this is kind of, you know, a lot of journalists came from like unionized newspapers and there's just like a long history of labor organizing among journalists. Well, I definitely, I, so most podcasts are not lucrative. We're not, okay. I, if I had to like guess where we are in sort of like the, I know what you're saying, which is like podcasting is like the, is like the fastest growing yeah market in journalism which i definitely think is true and like if like i watched uh, did you watch the sex in the city um reboot oh my god yes (laughs) but like when i found out that she is a podcaster now like i was like no (laughs) i mean it was always gonna it was always gonna be something horrible like that i know and uh, um a producer on reply all anna foley like tweet like she tweeted out like a funny thing about like a letter she wrote to hbo and like anger that um carries a podcaster and like the last line is like one thing that is accurate is that none of your friends like listen to your podcast which (laughs) (laughs) which is so true but but yeah, like podcast, like people you didn't used to know what the word podcast was like two years ago, and now like everyone does. So it's definitely grown a lot. But I think that in the same way, like do you remember when like web series were like big and people were like TV's doomed? Yeah. Like I think we're in like that stage of podcast kind of where it's like so many people have podcasts and like there are very few avenues for which for them to actually make money. Um, yes. I mean, yeah. yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I'm, I misspoke when I said that they are, I, I, I guess I was just thinking from the, like, 
the big podcast networks, like it's in the same way that like anything makes money. It's like the big networks right. usually have like a celebrity attached to it or something like that. But, you know, I'm thinking about like Serial and S-Town and all of these kind of like, um, those were, you know, attached to This American Life. Right. Which is NPR. Um, no, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, so, so there. It's I, not. It's not. It's really confusing. This is what I'm saying. So I was joke. I was telling Julia right before we like started recording that it actually. So when I graduated, my first job was as an associate producer on NPR's Latino USA. Latino mm-hmm. USA was distributed by NPR, but it was produced by Futuro Media. So, (laughs) literally, it is the most confusing effing thing how NPR is set up. Like, it's totally bonkers. Like, basically, like, NPR, the way it works is that each individual station, so, like, here in New York City, it's WNYC, where I work, KPCC, that's, like, Los Angeles, they they program their own shows. Oh, so that's why it's, like, um, from WHNY in Philadelphia or whatever? WHYY. H-Y-Y, sorry. Um, oh my God, yeah. That was so, that was literally so embarrassing, Julia, that you didn't that know. That was really embarrassing, okay? <laughs> you didn't know Philadelphia's uh, and local H-Y-Y public radio Philadelphia. station. Well, I should know that just because I've listened to Fresh Air. I love Fresh Air. I listened it's, yesterday. It's good. So good. Terry is so... Oh, she. I have a lot of complaints about her, but I... Um, to her credit, that like, did you hear the Lizzo interview? I did. Like, that was so embarrassing, but she still aired it. I know. Yeah. Dear yeah, listeners, for, if you don't... Yeah, yeah. If you, if you don't know, um, <laughs> it was something where t- Terry Gross asked a kind of question where she was like, don't you think that it's brave that you look the way that you do and you're still out there or something like that? It, was, it wasn't, ex- it wasn't it was, exactly said that. Me- it was a much more... No, but of- it was but it was pretty bad. It was like... She was like, normally I hate when like women are naked on the cover of their albums. But like when you do it, it's like, I like, like it. And so without missing a beat, it's like, why? Because I'm fat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's yeah. No, it's a great radio moment. Do you know what I'm saying? It is a great radio moment. And I do credit Terry Gross for airing that uh question because she could have easily cut that question yeah and she was like no that was like a real moment a learning a learning experience and uh we all got to hear it yeah yeah i also do i have found with her um she has a number of times interviewed women who are in some way like even tangentially can connected to uh a man of the me too movement uh, and she like makes them answer. She makes like the woman answer for the man. Oh, really? Yeah, she did that to Pamela Adlon, uh, obviously because of her working relationship with Louis C.K. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Pamela was there to promote her own show that Louis was not involved with. Um, but well, I think the Louis thing really hurt Terry. I saw I saw Terry speak live at a conference and like a very large portion of what she talked about is how sad she was about the Louis stuff 
because she like loved him. So I think that yeah, she babe, like we all did. Okay. <laughs> I'm just get saying, over it. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm not. You're totally legit critique against Terry, and I'm not here to defend her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we've already kind of touched on a bunch of different things. We're going. I I want us to to circle back to kind of how podcasts started because you know a lot more about the history of podcasts than I do and I've uh I've been wanting to learn from you. So give it to me. So public radio started under LBJ. So it's it's interesting. Like a lot of like the the like that's kind of recent. So that's something I don't know. I guess I didn't know like when public media would have started, but it was interesting. It started in the 60s. either yeah in the sixties, and then um, actually the person who invented podcasts was Steve Jobs. Um, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> he like had he had like a dream of like the, he loved the idea that they would be these like free like talks basically that like people like that would come with that like you know the podcasting app came with your iphone yeah um and sort of like the early adopt like basically like a lot of people in public radio realized like oh we can just put the existing shows that we have on the radio in to the podcasting app as its own separate thing and so of course the, the then the first two big hit podcasts were this american life yeah. And Radiolab. And then on the comedian side, it was like, uh, what what is his name? The guy who, uh, Mark Marin, like, all, like yeah, yeah, all of that kind of started happening at the same. That was like the first crop of like hit podcasts. Right. Well, but This American Life already existed as, as a radio, radio show. show. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it's like it's distinct from something like WTF, which was created specifically as a podcast um right but it's it's interesting totally but it's also interesting just like you know this american life basically brought like public media to like an entire new generation because oh npr is always gonna be like an old person brand which is like sort of like what i like about it me too (laughs) i am i am the resident old person of the show here even though i'm the younger i'm younger of the two of us no definitely like like young old person is a, you and I would have been friends in high school. Yes, for we, sure. we've, we talk about this all the time. Antonia and I uh, both love to go to bed early. Loves it's, going to bed early. Oh God, do we love it? <laughs> <laughs> go absolutely fucking nuts for going to bed early. <laughs> I know. And like, I love a, I love a film with a mid Atlantic accent. Like, Ooh, I really do. Yeah. Or, um, but at the same time, like, I like. Anyway, I, I feel like. It's like extremes. I like like to go to bed early, but like I love to party. I like to watch like old movies, but I also like Uncut Gems is like one of my favorite films. Like I feel like And you I love live... like you love like dance hall music. Oh well dance hall music is the best music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go let's get back to the history Sorry. of podcasts. Oh yeah. So um so like that's so they they were basically like a free thing, right? That that Steve Jobs was like, Oh, people are gonna like he like literally talked about Plato and like Aristotle having like the dialogues. Oh my god! I know that was- <laughs> he was such a blowhard. Sorry, like yes, he was a genius visionary, but come on. But then, of course, like people were like, "Oh, we could actually like monetize this," mm-hmm. and 
I think that's like actually the reason why like you know Gimlet was like the the idea was like these public media shows have such large audiences yeah and we're making no money right and actually I had I had breakfast with someone who worked at Gimlet and I remember like one of the like early people and I remember them saying like I feel really proud of Gimlet because the entire industry had to start having higher salaries because people were leaving to take these like private jobs which like is great but it's also like it complete like that was the beginning of sort of like the end of public media being the main podcast like giant like now Mm -hmm. when you look at like the top the I mean obviously public media still like has a really big uh presence but like it looks much more like cable news you know it's like talking heads political and analysis sports like those t- two girls who like what is it like we we date guys what is it called? <laughs> what we is d- it? oh you mean guys we fucked yeah <laughs> we date guys that is the oh my god that's like the disney version of guys we fucked is we date guys <laughs> we date guys <laughs> And like true crime, you know, like true crime, like oh, yeah. it's like well, the true equi- crime has like a chokehold on the podcast industry. I feel yeah, it's true, it absolutely does. So yeah, so it, j- it just like looks way more like cable TV than when like it first started, and like the big shows were like The Moth, like stories that move your heart from the stage. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so it's interesting. Be- in- interesting because like the salaries have gone up like insane amounts, like. A good salary in public media was like 65. You know, you were like, wow, that person is wealthy. And now it's like that's starting salary and people can make much, much, much more. Um, And that's been you think that's been the result of like a shop like Gimlet unionizing? Well, no, this that was prior to the unionizing. Oh, Um, but the unionizing is the unionizing is a response to the fact that like you know, obviously, like the t- like podcasting can be relentless, and it's like in the same way like the internet is relentless in that it can come out at any time, and you are always there's always there's so like they con the amount of content is like infinite, and so there's like no guardrails in terms of like how long people work, mm-hmm. and early like like place shops like I heard that like pe- that Radio Lab would do like all nighters regularly, yeah. you know, and well think about think about the daily, they, uh. They, I think they record at like really, really late into the night to get it out the next day. Yeah. I no, they, they have like people in like London who like work to like also get it out at the right time. And then also like people in Hawaii, like they have people across like all of the different time zones to try to like address all of the time yeah. issues. Yeah. When I, I, I haven't listened to the daily in a few years, but I just remember that it was like, like they would get the breaking part of a story up until like three, four or 5 a.m. No, it's crazy. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's def- and the other thing that like was important for unionizing also was the fact that um, the, like there, like there were a lot of people who were like doing like day rates or like who were like working as temp jobs that were like not particularly um, the temp jobs were bad or not reliable Mm-hmm. and there was just like a lot of like in, like uh instability i think so and actually i mean the, i've so i've never been in a union and i was kind of bummed because futuro didn't have a union where i worked 
for mm-hmm. for Latino USA. And then I in my new job, I'm management. So I like one day I would love to be a union, but I don't actually like I don't have an ins- and KPCC like WNYC and a lot of these like public media places like they've had unions for the longest. Right. Right. But I don't know. Like, I don't know inside what happened at Gimlet. I don't know inside what's happening at iHeart. But I just think that it's this thing that because it's it's a industry that is still sort of like change in flux so much. But all like all like the same with like Buzz. I mean, all of the institutions wanted unions. So yeah. yeah, yeah. The BuzzFeed union was another was another huge one. Yeah, because honestly, BuzzFeed also like people think of BuzzFeed as just like the listicle capital of the internet but it they also do a lot of like long form journalism and they do a lot, like they do a lot of you know buzzfeed politics does like real journalism too oh for sure we have a i have a good friend ken bensinger who does incredible investigative work for buzzfeed no and emma o'connor also just they have incredible reporters and i and i yeah. do think it's like it's crazy because they've been putting out that work for like years mm-hmm. but like how do you get past the the listicle it's just like it's so fun it's like amazing that they were able to do it yeah <laughs> yeah um i didn't i mean i kind of know what's going on at iheart just because uh one of my best friends has done like a million podcasts for them uh and i know how hard she and everyone in her orbit work on these uh these shows and iHeart obviously you know like any corporation where people want to unionize iHeart is making money hand over fist and they're uh the people who make the podcasts that make them money are not reaping any of the uh the rewards so all of my love and support to iHeart Radio unionizing uh unionization effort but yeah, I think I think you're right that it is a sign of the times. And also, I do have to think that, you know, obviously, like you said, WNYC and stations like it have been union for a long time. I just think that there is like, and a lot of, as I said before, a lot of newspapers uh, were unionized for decades. Um, and some of them still are. Yeah. But, no, I think this is like the cycle forever with media. You know, it's like yeah. a ton of seed money goes into something. Like I, I used to host a, a podcast for Mike dot com, RIP. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> Mike dot com's offices maybe were in the World Trade Center, and they had a sky lobby. Like there was a lobby, and then they had the sky lobby, and you had to go like to two elevators. It was like nuts. Um. But yeah, like that that was like all venture capital. They were like swimming in it and then when the that ran out, they were like, "All right, we made no money, so everyone must go." Yeah, and also wasn't there Am I making this up? Was there an effort to unionize Condé Nast? I think so. But no, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. I I'll have to follow up on that. I don't remember it succeeding, but <laughs> Um, but yeah, and guess what? Starbucks what? first unionized Starbucks. Honestly, that is so exciting. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, oh my god. Sorry, my cats are 
Julia knows my cats. They're amazing, but they're like, they're like, they're scoundrels. They they really egg each other on. Also, um, listeners of the podcast will know that this show is no stranger to cat interference. We have it all the time. Kate's cats, my cat. Look, actually, a lot of our guests also have cats. (laughs) What do you think that says? What do you think that means? I don't want to look into it. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to um, probe into my soul to find out what that means, but it has to be good. Yeah, I agree. No, um, I, d- I definitely do think that like cat um, people who don't like cats like don't like don't like others to be independent is what mm-hmm. I think. I think that they have attachment issues. Yeah, that's my need... wow. extremely biased opinion about people who don't like cats. <laughs> um yeah i think i would i think i would agree with that also it's just yeah cats come to you on their terms people don't like that people want the like instant gratification of an animal loving you but it's like so much better when you know that you've earned it okay maybe we're the ones with attachment problems (laughs) okay maybe that's true but i'm again i'm not looking into it um (laughs) no but i know you mean yeah, I just have so much more, more respect for that kind of relationship. Yeah. Where we all know that we're, like, putting in the work, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so... One of the journalistic projects that you uh, undertook in the last few years was Norco 80, which is the uh, podcast that you did for Latino USA. No, so that one was um we did it actually with L- so before i got this job we partnered i was at futuro and we partnered with kpcc slash laist um because they had bought the rights to a book called norco 80 about this crazy botched bank robbery in the 80s um and honestly at that point like i was in a, in a place in my life where i like really wanted to try hosting a thing Mm -hmm. So I was just, I was super excited about the opportunity. And in general, like, I love a heist. So I was like, sick. Bank robbery, here we go. But as we took on the project, it became, um, there was lots of things that were amazing. Like, we got to work with really great tape. Like, to me, the, the, like, gold standard for documentary is when you have actual footage so like mm-hmm. th- we tape of something happening in real time mm-hmm. not like a reconstruction or people talking about it but like right. actually being able to see it like unfold right and they have the mm-hmm. sound of the police like radioing each other while it's happening and also like interviews with the bank robbers right after they were captured so like the tape is really crazy and like very vivid and they um, so that was like a, a really exciting project to work with that tape. And then, um, also it was like the first episodic thing I'd ever worked on. So I was excited to like, try to like take a stab at like structuring a big project. The thing that was hard is that like this story, the reason why they even had the tape is because police officers sort of use it as like the example of why they needed to have, um, heavier weapons. Mm-hmm. and get like mi- like militarized this is in southern california right it's in southern california but it's like you could talk to people who go- did their police training in dc like we did and they had heard of it and seen the video 
So mm-hmm. it's like it became like a and that's another thing, like speaking of like how it's really confusing how NPR is set up, like uh, like the way that police departments are set up slash like sheriff's offices, like it's like really decentralized, you know, oh, like yeah. we talk oh, about yeah. the police so much, but like really it's not like there's like a top policeman. It's like no. every single. Yeah, exactly. No, we, I, we, yeah, we talked about this on the episode I did with my dad. With your dad. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, yeah. Where there is no, um, like national centralized federation of police. There is no, everything is very jurisdiction by jurisdiction and it makes it really difficult to do any sort of like structural reforms from the top down because right. there isn't there is no top down it's, exactly it's all kind of horizontal <laughs> no for sure exactly and and so but it, so but the thing is is that like that's how big of a of a moment this was that even though it happened in southern california it's like became like you know, a really famous um, event across the country. Like people heard about it for decades after in trainings um, because it, be, it was a really violent event. Like lots of people died and there was a big shootout and the robbers were like super armed also. Um, and so while we were reporting the story, so the book was written. So we had like also like basically like the story and like th- we were really, really fortunate to have like access to a lot of the people who were interviewed in the book. Mm-hmm. But I was doing all the interviews, and as we were doing the interviews, the George Floyd protests were happening. And it was sort of like, how did, like, you know, it would have felt really weird to not sort of talk about the story within the context of the climate that we were reporting it. Um, But, like, in my dream world, I would have, like, I would have had years to do that story because... like we basically needed to like put that event in context and like Mm -hmm. to do that you just like need to do a ton of research and so i think we like did the best we could and we asked really hard questions and i was i'm actually extremely grateful the officers like gave me really honest answers you know and it's not easy to talk about those things and like that was a really traumatic event for everyone involved so like i'm really grateful that people were vulnerable with me but it, it was just like it was a stressful topic to talk about at that moment in particular so like i've sort of like f- like haven't thought about it deeply <laughs> since we did it it was a little bit like well okay that was really intense um mm-hmm. but i hope i don't know i i like it's funny i um have you seen the movie into the cut no so J- jane campion who just did power of the dog She's an incredible director. And like this was her most panned movie. It was it's starring Meg Ryan. Oh, in and, the cut. In the oh, cut. in the cut, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Have yeah. you seen it? I have not, but it is like it's gotten Jordan Searles, who we've had on the show before, who's a film critic and writer, her like biggest uh, hill to die on is that in the cut is like a masterpiece and it has kind of had like a resurgence in pop culture in the last few years. I saw it without knowing anything about it. I was like on Criterion and like their neo noir series, so like yeah. I started watching it, and I was like, "This is the best shit I've ever watched." Yeah, it's like and, Mark Mark Ruffalo too, right? Yeah, Mark Ruffalo plays like a gross but extremely sexy character, 
Um, again, listeners to listeners of our show are no stranger to someone uh, to us describing someone as gross but very sexy. <laughs> but but it was a, it was filmed right after 9/11 and it was filmed in New York. So you like see like the American flag like everywhere. And it's about it's about the police in not a very flattering light. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just like the timing of it was like really off, you know. Like, I think that, like, all the themes now, 20 years later, people were like, wow, she was, like, really onto something. And I guess what I'm saying is, like, my greatest hope for Norco 80 is that, like, years from now, people were like, wow, they were talking about some real stuff on that show. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, you, so Norco 80 is your in the cut. Is I don't, Maybe I'll regret making that comparison. It's your... But- jennifer's body yeah yeah it's my jennifer's body well it's because it's like a it's a honestly it's a weird topic for me given my like body of work that i had done up until that point which was Mm like i do a lot of like stuff about like identity and pop culture and not policing so it was like it was kind of intense but but it was a great learning experience and well, I remember yeah. when Norco was being, as it was being released, something that you talked to me about were uh, the comments that you got on that show. Um, and it seemed like a lot of people, like from what they wrote, it seemed that a lot of people immediately when they heard you say your name, just kind of like threw your credibility out the window yeah there were like multiple comments that were like the moment i heard her say her name like in like the accent which is like the way that like i grew grew to know my name you know like that's like how it's said uh i knew she would like be biased and i had a really like a bunch of people told me like oh you like you know the comments are the comments like you can't take that seriously which like sure fine but like they were like very xenophobic and misogynistic and when i started this new job there's an older (laughs) older gentleman i work with who's like the programming director his name is sal and like he was the first like white person to be like that was really racist and fucked up that you went through that and i like started hysterically crying (laughs) (laughs) i was like thank you because it was horrible i like it felt awful and Obviously, like, people get crappy comments all the time, but it's, like, you know, after that show came out, like, Dan Taberski did a show called, like, The Line that was, and obviously, like, his perspective on, he, and it was about um, the Iraq War and, like, Navy SEALs, and I couldn't listen to it because I was, like, I literally can't think about the military anytime soon, mm-hmm. but, I, like, I do, like, the way that he's able to approach that story versus me, like, is very different, or, like, I even, I listen to S-Town, which I think is a masterpiece. I, I think do, it's one too. Of the best I really podcasts. do. But I'm like, I hear that show and I think about how like I could have never done that show. And right. actually I had that thought and then Bethel Habte who wrote like who's been writing a lot of smart things about like positionality and race through telling these sort of narrative stories. She now works for Resistance. She tweeted the same thing where she was like, I could have never made us town. And I like there's, you know, true crime is such a popular genre and like there we've been doing i think there's been a lot done in just now like in the most recent years about how to readdress that issue from like a place of like understanding identity but it's really tough Mm -hmm. to do those kinds of stories um yeah yeah. s-town in particular is 
you know, the main subject of S-Town, for those of you who haven't listened to it, is a man who's like pretty openly very racist. <laughs> he uses a lot of colorful language and uh, to put it mildly, and he just has... He was gay, too, right? Mm-hmm. And um, not that that makes any difference, but he, I think you're absolutely right in that there is only, oh, I think he responded the way that he did just because he felt that he was speaking among friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's really frustrating because... So we talk about like the weaponization of identity politics on this show from time to time. And that's absolutely a reality of the world that we live in today. But also, I think that it's as important to show this side of the coin in which there are people who like look at you and or in li- or hear you say your own name and that's and then they shut their brains off and they can't hear they won't listen to anything else. So I think that it's it is a really nuanced issue. Um and, no, and, think, it, and it yeah. is true that like, you know, living here in Brooklyn like you forget that, you know? Like yes. you forget like it's not like a regular experience in my life. And so when it happened, it felt like pretty violent, you know. Yeah. But No, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hated that. Yeah. But but then, you know, the other show I worked on last year was Anything for Selena, which was named the best new podcast by Apple. Okay. And has been written up, it was said it was to be one of the best podcasts by Vogue and Esquire and um, many more lists. Uh, I wish wish that I had been able to say all those (laughs) on your behalf. No, oh my God. But I didn't know them all. I'm sorry. No, it's... That it would be weird for you to have that list just like on hand, you know? That I'm you your stalker it. and I know all of the awards <laughs> and accolades you've ever received. But that show was like the opposite experience, you know, where like people were like commenting, like, I've never felt understood. And like what I liked about that show is that we talk about identity politics, but we deconstruct them, you know? Like yeah. to me, I worked at Latino USA for years. I can never hear another story again where the point is I'm neither from here nor from there. Like, oh, yeah. ni de aquí, ni de like it's the most boring <laughs> crap I've ever heard. And like so many people start like or like like end up at like representation matters. And you're like, that's yeah. not a story. That's not interesting. Yeah, we know that. And so like to me, what's exciting is like I feel like finally we're at a place where like 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 for lack of better term, like POC stories are being like told in much more interesting ways and like i'm very excited about like the like representation matters being like just like a foundational aspect of what we're doing and then right. everything else like builds on that um and that's like all the new shows that we're developing now I, like i'm so excited for them and like we were doing like a couple of true crime shows but like from like re- like really interesting times periods of history and from like really interesting perspectives and I'm calling them neo-noirs rather than true crime because I think that's sexier. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah. So, well, have you also, there was a report that like increasingly there have been more and more crimes solved by civilians. <laughs> and I do think that is part of the true crime phenomenon. 
Um, <laughs> it's someone, yeah, someone uh, quote tweeted an article talking about the the rise in civilian solved cold cases and, <laughs> and said like defund the police. <laughs> Which all right, there you know, many streams go to the ocean, but <laughs> no, um, yeah, it's like yeah, and that stuff's always like very tough because on the one hand it's like amazing that more cases get solved but at the same time you know privacy issues arise sure but what is life if not tension you know what how boring <laughs> how, how boring would it be if there was no drama it'd yeah. be so dull so terribly dull um yeah and well i i read the book and i also watched the hbo miniseries of i'll be gone in the dark I haven't d- consumed either of those. Is it worth it? Should I do it? You should. I, okay. And honestly, like, I mean, the book is great. And I think Michelle McNamara was incredible. And that kind of like obsessive drive she had for this case is so admirable. And it's, and it is also kind of something that like only someone in her position could have done too because she had like the resources to devote her every waking hour that wasn't spent like parenting her child yeah <laughs> to uh to researching this case um and she worked with like another civilian uh who they met on like a message board like a reddit thread or something like that um about the golden state killer so yeah i i think i don't know i i do subscribe to the the notion that maybe true crime is rotting our brains a little bit but um you know everything comes in waves i do think that people are getting some people are getting a little burnt out on true crime yeah because i also think there's too much going on in the world do you find that like i think that when serial came out it was a simpler time it was a simpler time like that was yeah the the new episode of serial coming out like every week was an event oh my god do you remember that was crazy it was so wild. That was like a great time because also after that, the Jinx came out, which oh, I love. The Jinx, unparalleled. 10 out of 10. <laughs> I, it's so good. And Ca- Robert Durst. Cadaver. Like Cadaver really sent me. I like love that. And there was like a guy in my office who like had the same handwriting as Robert Durst. And I would just be like, you literally have cadaver handwriting. And he didn't. Robert Durst yeah. is also, you know, he's a star. Uh, he is a perfect. He was just a perfect subject. I'm glad that that I'm glad that the Jinx was not a podcast. And it was because I think and it was a, a documentary series because people needed to see Robert Durst. I mean, the way that it started with him dressed up as the woman for like it was just it was so good on so many levels like as like i don't know if this i mean i'm sure like if you i don't know obviously when you're watching stand-up your brain is thinking like how is this joke constructed or Mm -hmm. like how is this landing i don't know i'm assuming that's how yeah yeah yeah. yeah. whereas like if i watch a documentary or listen to a podcast like it's terrible like it's just like i start editing it you know like it's very hard for me to (laughs) 
And it's just like the Jinx is constructed so perfectly. It's just like the way that they... Ugh, it's just so good. Same with, honestly, Tiger King, I think it is masterful. I never saw it. It's like deeply upsetting. And I understand why people don't want to see it. And I also... There are very fair critiques, I think, of it in terms of like maybe glamorizing Joe Exotic or whatever. But the takes like the actual visually it's stunning the characters are crazy like the way that it ramps up is just like pacing wise like perfect like it's mm-hmm. just it's so good i think yeah huge tiger king fan <laughs> yeah yeah and you know what i i was thinking about um that just made me think about when i guess it's not true crime but when podcasting journalistic podcasting wants so badly to get to a certain conclusion that it goes awry. I think the example that comes to the top of my mind uh, immediately is the New York times podcast hosted by Rukmini Kalamaki. Oh my God. Um, Which one? What was that called? Yeah. Yeah. It was called Caliphate. Caliphate. I listened to the whole thing uh it was too good to be true as it was going on and i was like this is fascinating basically it's about um you know it centers around this canadian uh man who was allegedly like radicalized and uh by the by isis and um and it turned out to be based on a lot of spurious evidence and claims uh, um and the new york times ended up issuing a retraction yeah so that's like that's one thing for an article but for this like series that's supposed to be journalistic it's like are we just now like addicted to the drama of these true crime podcasts i don't know I mean, I think that I would have to, like, go and review, all, like, all of the steps of how that happened. But, I like, it. I think that one of the things that's interesting about narrative shows is that, like, you know, when I went to, I went to J school, journalism school, and... One oh, of my the- God, it's called J... You guys call it J school? Wait, that's <laughs> actually... I'm sorry, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely embarrassing. But one of the things that we are like taught is like you can't do a single source story mm-hmm. you know like they're like oh yeah but the thing is is like so much of narrative storytelling like actually is like single source storytelling and it made me think of this american life ha- remember that story about the guy who um went to i think it was it was china where they built the iphones i think Yes. It was like, yes. And it turned out to, he had like a one man show about this mm-hmm. and it turned out to all be fake. And then This American Life did a whole other episode about where they had screwed up. And then after that, they started implementing this really intensive fact checking process. Um, but it's like, I think that the thing that is so interesting about documentary, right, is that it like lives in this like space that is and same with like magazine style writing where it's like it has to be both true but also entertaining Mm -hmm. and i think you're right i think that like 
there often is a, a time where like what you would most want to have is not going to be the most interesting thing, especially mm -hmm. if like you're dealing with like a lot of like data or, you know, do like documents are very boring. Like documents are like the death knell of good storytelling is like documents. You're on blast. <laughs> <laughs> documents. Yeah. You're beat. You're busted <laughs> the house. And that's yeah. that. I don't know, but it's, it's hard. And I, but but also yes, it's like insane that they did that at the New York Times, and wow, I like forgot that that happened. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and it's definitely not. Again, it's not um, unique to the podcasting world. Uh, it happens across the the journalism world over. Uh, it's definitely happened on TV, um, on like. Tele television broadcast journalism before too I think it's just like since I think Serial was such a formative podcast for the whole industry just because it just really ramped up every single week and it always kind of left on a cliffhanger and that was great you know just a real achievement in like in storytelling and pacing but some things cannot be serialized, yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it's true. Um, yeah. And that is, I don't know. I, I wonder if you get so deep into the story. I, I, I wonder if someone like Rukmini, whose journalism I really liked for a long time, I, you know, did she just become so invested in this narrative that she was blinded to the huge holes in uh her own story i think it's like a tension that like even like the stuff that happened this week about the 1619 project like the critique mm -hmm. in the new yorker i don't know if you saw all of that i didn't basically it was like there are a lot of academics who feel like that the the actual sort of like historical research and analysis in the 1619 project is a little bit um thin mm -hmm. uh but obviously like the point of the 1619 project is like is to be somewhat flashy you know mm -hmm. and reach a wide audience and and like i don't think nicole hannah jones's audience is like you know stuffy elite professors i think it is like a larger audience at the same time though like that does that like that can't mean that she's like making stuff up Right. But I, yeah, so it's and I think that that tension is there, too, because like also what she's she's making an argument with 1619. And I think that that's the thing. It's like. A lot of like, for instance, like what we did with Norco, ultimately, it's like we're making an argument, like we're making a telling taking a read on like what happened. Um, she's a journalist, not a historian. Right. But she is telling a history. Yeah, so it's like. And I, th and I think that it's sort of like the same thing where it's... And also, yeah. I will say, like, as a student of history myself, I historians make an argument. When right. they are doing um, research, all of the, you know, all of the published historians, I'm sure the same ones who are very critical of the 1619 Project, I haven't seen the criticisms, I don't know what they are, um, but you have to kind of make an argument all hi history is not it's not a single narrative it's not right. one there's nothing objective about it um 
yeah, it's like, it's all up to, it's a lot of just like interpretation and analysis and coming to. We've gone to that classic point in, in every conversation about journalism to which you, which someone is like, what is objectivity? Like, does it exist? <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like where all roads end there where you're yeah. like nothing is actually real and we are all there's no real answer. That's like why every when I go when I go talk to journalism students I always tell them like my one piece of advice is like take an easy algebra class <laughs> so you can like solve for x and know you have the answer right because you're never going to have that satisfaction <laughs> again in your life. <laughs> That's good. I like yeah. that. Although I don't support math as oh. a practice but um, <laughs> you don't support it i don't support it i don't um i don't like it uh, math gross documents <laughs> get out of my life <laughs> no i i like documents i'll say it of course you do i could have guessed that <laughs> uh my name is julia i love going to bed early and documents thanks <laughs> I date guys or whatever that show is. But <laughs> what did you say? Guys, we date. Yeah, or we no. date men. No, I don't know. We we date guys instead of guys we fucked. <laughs> I would listen to that. It's, it sounds like a le- it's less like aggressive sounding. Uh, no, I mean not to. Sh- I, f- I feel like I put myself into like a little wow, trap there. That's very sex negative of you, Antonia. Uh, no. <laughs> maybe no no no. it's okay um again as listeners will know this is a very sex negative podcast (laughs) finally finally a space for sex negative women to express themselves in a progressive leftist space um yeah but okay i think we've we've covered a lot of ground on the journalistic podcasting space. Although I think to wrap this up, I would want to ask you where you think the industry is headed. If you have any sort of predictions, either kind of like structurally, institutionally or otherwise. I think it's going to keep looking more like TV, like Mm -hmm. the way that it is. And I, what I'm hoping it, it feels like, um, like in the same way that like Apple and like Spotify or like the Netflix and like what's an like like the streaming platforms, you know? But I think that the and I'm I'm sure like more of the production will probably end up going through them. But the um I hope you know places like Pineapple Street are doing like really exciting work and like places like Eliast and Futuro and I think that like one of the things that's been awesome about what's been going on is that like you know when I started it was like Ira and Jad and they you know I think like we owe them so much they're like really incredibly talented people who like spearheaded so many interesting artistic endeavors but like it is so exciting that there really is a much wider diversity of perspectives than there was than there was um and like i see that happening like you know gimlet after the reply all debacle like Mm. they did something where like now all their big shows are black shows which i think is so rad like resistance is such a fucking good show and emmanuel is like such a talented host and i do feel like one of the things that is cool and that i hope podcasting doesn't lose but probably it will so who knows is that like 
public media is a very white space, but it's also a place where like there is a belief that like racism is real and like women should be treated well and like there is like a progress like progressive not in the like political sense but in a pro- progressive in like the like social sense yeah i mean like public radio was like a place where people like even though the salaries were low like there was like like there were women in positions of leadership not mm-hmm. always like obviously there's there's been a lot of drama in that too but like there there's the expectation that that should exist, you know? And I think that that, that is a- worth something. I know yeah. that that's, there are some people who kind of might roll their eyes at that, but that, uh, you know, I, I think even a, just as a listener, you, you can realize that to be true. Or it's um, like Latino USA, the show that I worked on for years was mandated. Like they had to air it on certain stations across the country. And those stations were really, not happy about it to be honest they were like oh we have to put this show on and then over time like that company has like become so robust like loud the show the history of reggaeton that i only worked on very briefly at the beginning but like went on to be a huge blockbuster hit for spotify like that was able to happen because like for years they were shoving that content in people's faces and so latinx producers had space to do work that then Mm -hmm. laid the foundation to do other stuff and so didn't pay off right away but it's like that you know that's like the thing it's like sometimes it takes a while for like those sorts of endeavors to pay off and i think that in certain aspects it is paying off now so i agree and i think that's an interesting point that you touched on which is I think that a lot of the the pain that we are experiencing as a country, um, particularly, um, you know, violence against black Americans by the police, that was expedited by the advent and, uh, you know, widespread usage of cell phone cameras, obviously. But I think also long-form journalistic pieces, particularly in podcasts, have also been able to explore, you know, the cell phone cameras, those videos are very immediate. Um, It's kind of, they're only as long as the clip themselves. Um, But I think that police malpractice has been able to be explored in a really thoughtful and thorough way in avenues like podcasts in mediums like podcasts um, because that you know the medium just like lends itself to be able to to being able to explore things in depth so I think it has, I think it really has done a lot in amplifying the stories of people who otherwise wouldn't be heard. Um, I think it has, I think podcasts really have democratized something about storytelling in the United States. Um It's not all good and it's certainly, it's very hard to make like most podcasts aren't lucrative yeah ours is not i'll tell you what folks please subscribe to our patreon um 
but you heard you heard her subscribe subscribe also please rate us on itunes and stop telling us we have vocal fry um but yeah i think that it is it's an excite it's still an exciting medium even though we've reached the point where it's like a cliche and it's like a punchline yeah. that everyone has a podcast and you know on sex in the city miranda doesn't listen to carrie's podcast which is hilarious i love yeah. that they wrote that in um yeah no and it's like it is interesting like you know everybody has a camera and like people upload to youtube but they didn't talk that way like yeah i just remember when like they really thought that web series was were gonna end tv and then it was like no like there's people want to see things that are like well structured and well told and have money put into them and obviously like and good interviewing is like a complete skill and like you know like people still want things of quality so i think like yeah i think that um, I think there's going to probably be like a bubble burst soon. Like, honestly, there are salaries that are being paid that I'm like, literally how I yeah. don't understand because their advertising money is not going to is not going to pay for most shows. Mm -hmm. So. Like, it's a skill set, like it's a skill set that more and more people are getting this. Like, it's a great time to have those skill set because right now there's so many honestly, like very good paying jobs for people like early in their career if they have like audio editing skills mm -hmm. um but i don't think that this time where people can get a lot of those jobs is going to last particularly long so you heard it here first get it while it's hot get it while it's hot <laughs> but but i think eventually but i think it'll be good also for the consumer and and all even for the people i don't know i think people want to be working on things that matter and I think that, like, there is an issue right now of, like, people don't know where to find shows, I feel like. It's sort of like, how do I find them? Where are they? What's a good show? There's so many shows. Like, how do you figure out what's good? I think that process is going to get better. And I think people are going to be better served. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads us perfectly into, uh, you know, it's the end of the year. I know that you came prepared with some of your favorite podcasts uh, that you've listened to this year. So, Give us those hot wrecks. Um, I do. I made a little list. Um, one show that I do not think has been getting enough love on these lists is this show called The Turning, which is about um, Mother Teresa's. They're not technically sisters. I remember. I forget what they're called, but basically sisters. Um, it's like a bunch of like tortured nuns who like have like talk about like their sexuality and their desires. It's like literally my favorite kind of content. Um, so you mean like sisters in, in the monastery? Yes. Yeah. It's like sexy till it's not sexy. The show It's very good. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Season two of Turner Classic Movies podcast. Uh I didn't even know they had a podcast. Yeah, they have three seasons and seasons one and three are like fine. But season two is about the making of the Vanity of the Bonfires by uh, directed by Brian De Palma. But there was a journalist who was on set while they made it. And then she wrote a book about it. But she has like recordings of like Bruce Willis and Melanie Griffith and like sort of like just like shows like how they got it spectacularly wrong and why it was a huge flop and for mm -hmm. anyone who like makes stuff it's just like it's juicy it's interesting it's like it's just it's a very it's very good um there's a show called spectacle by my friends at neon hum that's like 
uh, history of reality TV. Ooh. It's really good. And like the, I didn't even, the first episode is about like a show I didn't even know existed, but the first reality TV show ever was on PBS and it was called American Family. And by chance throughout that season, the couple divorces. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. It's, it's very juicy. I do think that the, the history of the real world is very interesting. I think there is going to be some sort of like, there is like a retrospective show about the first season of The Real World that has just come out, and I'm not sure where, but oh, um, but yeah, I it's it is very interesting to me. Someone also, there was a this tweet I saw um, about how like someone said, I I bet Tyra Banks fears every day that someone's going to do an investigative podcast about uh america's next top model oh my god julia i have to do that show i want to do i want to (laughs) help that's such a good i mean america's next top model like have like i get a lot of the tiktoks of like the craziest moments from that show and it's one of our former one of our past guests was a contestant who which which sarah hartshorn what she was was on season Eight, I want to say, but she got like fairly far. It's just like it's so crazy. I loved that show. Like oh, I was, yeah. like, I was obsessed with it, and it was so crazy. No, I like. You're right. That's like such a crazy. You know what it is? I think that reality TV. Like, I was. I studied journalism, but I also studied like film theory in college. And for anyone who like loves like literary like criticism or criticism like or a theory any kind of theory girls out there or boys or non-binary people whatever <laughs> like re- the concept of reality tv mm-hmm. like a construction that is reality like it freaking breaks your brain yeah you know it's so good it's so layered it's just like so complex like it's like ah uh, it's such an interesting topic <laughs> yeah i have a friend who is a reality tv story producer and you you know you think of well we all know quote unquote reality TV is fake or whatever mm-hmm. but it's like yes these things actually happen but it's not just about things being scripted or whatever it's like there are things there are some shows where it's like unscripted but there's still a story producer who creates a narrative based on the available footage so right. I mean it's it is like putting together a documentary but it's mm-hmm. right exactly but it's like the it's like the real time construction of like a narrativizing reality i don't know it's just like it's a mind fuck it's so good <laughs> that's fascinating Who, what reality shows does your friend work for she's worked for a bunch um but she is uh this spring i think she is working on uh her biggest her biggest show yet which is uh real housewives of atlanta no way yeah the, i've been watching salt lake city do you watch the i i've never seen I've never seen anything in the in the world, Real Housewives universe. I like hadn't really either, but then everyone was telling me about Beverly Hills and Salt Lake City, and like, it's nuts. It's worth watching. I think. <laughs> Speaking of my next, uh, my next um, recommendation is an episode of the show The Experiment, hosted by Julia Longoria. It's a um, WNYC and the Atlantic co-production. And one of the episodes produced by Tracy Hunt, who's an incredible producer, is about 90 Day Fiance. Mm. And 
I didn't realize that 90 Day Fiance was like about immigration. Did you know that? Yes. Nuts. But like what it means that that show is so popular, like it's just it's a very good like analysis of like the impact of that show and like why we watch it and what is so like gross about it, but also makes you not be able to stop watching it. Well, isn't it so interesting? This just made me think about like, obviously so much of reality TV is inherently exploitative and it's like, and that's the point. Mm -hmm. Um, And how that has dovetailed with podcasting is interesting to me. Cause they all have podcasts. You mean? Yeah. But also because like, what was one of the original reality shows? Fear Factor Hosted by yes. Joe Rogan, who is now like the most popular podcaster in the world. And he's, you know, he's never done anything wrong and uh, he's <laughs> never said anything factually incorrect. And my, oh my love and respect him. Well, and or like Dax Shepard started on Punked. That's true. Oh my God. Me and my one of my colleagues, we both talk all the time about how we like get sucked into listening to Armchair Expert. And we're like, literally, why are we listening to this? Because it's like, he's like a bad interviewer, but he's like a great interviewer. It's Well, this is crazy. So this is one of the things that I was, I was talking about today uh, is that much like the, the studio, the movie studios where they are quite monopolistic now and they are buying up every little production company and therefore that creates a space where the only thing that gets made are Marvel movies. Mm -hmm. Um, I do see kind of a similar practice with the big private podcast uh, companies anyways, um, where there has to be like a celebrity attached or something like that. Like Kate and I ran into this actually, you know, I, I don't think that we'll ever be on a network, but networks won't even look at you unless you have 10,000 regular listeners. Yeah. It's easier to sell an idea to a network that doesn't exist yet. Right. Than something with like, you know, we have, we have I think we average like five to seven thousand listeners uh, per episode, and I really don't think I, I I just think that that would be like immediately prohibitive for us if we tried to go to a network. I it would make no sense for you to go to a network. I mean, no, I know. Well, also like the Patreon thing is like crazy, you know, like. Well, yeah, but I mean, the Patreon thing is like ev- is like everything else, where it's like one percent of creators get 99 percent of the money (laughs) no no for sure but it's just like it's the i agree like i think the only way that it would make sense to have a network would be like to have a new idea probably yeah but it's just it's it's interesting to me because it feels like the the podcasts that actually get funding it's all the same as traditional media it's all it's all the same rules as traditional media it seems yeah but i the thing that i will say is that it also like yeah i mean that's the like it's also like an audience thing you know like i I feel like 
media is an extremely reactive uh, industry. And so like, like the, when masses react to a thing, it's like really crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What am I trying to get at? It's just like the, like people's listening pattern, you know, like why did I listen to Dax Shepard, like interviewing like Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, I'm like, what, what compelled Cause you, me? Cause you love to hurt yourself. <laughs> Clearly. Seriously. I like listen. And I'm like, what? Like there's, they're saying things that they've not checked that are like, are, you know, I'm like just sitting there being like, they're just saying cuckoo pants things to people. Yeah. But I'm listening. This is uh, Antonia. I do want to say that you are the first person on our show to ever use the term cuckoo pants. <laughs> um, and I want to congratulate you. Uh. Yeah. And okay. We will, we will we will forever cite you if if that term comes up again. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have um. I have two more. Let's hear them. One is the history of reggaeton that I mentioned. You should listen to it. It's called Loud. And the other is there's an episode of This American Life called Essential. That's like a way of like remembering the year of the pandemic through numbers but like not of deaths of like other things that are measured in terms of how our life has changed in the last year Mm -hmm. and i cried while listening to it and i thought it was extremely beautiful and i think it's like very worthy of everyone's time great yeah wow well that was a very uh very comprehensive list and I thank you for, I mean, you are an expert, so I thank you for your perspective. Uh, Before we head out, Antonia has been really bursting at the seams to talk about pop culture, and we usually don't do that on this podcast too much. We, you know, when it intersects with the themes that we already discuss, we'll do it. But um, for this episode only... We are introducing Antonia's Pop Culture Corner. Take it away. Give me your hot takes. Thank you so much. I literally was like, it's so classic that I was like, oh, finally, my chance to talk about this. And Julia was like, what are your, like, one, do you listen to the podcast? (laughs) Two, I didn't say that. I assume no one, I assume none of my friends listen to the podcast. I am a, I am not a psychopath. Listen, the Sex in the City reboot got one thing very right. I know. (laughs) Um... Okay, so these are my hot takes. Because to me, you know, I was like, I was like, this feels like an end of the year sort of like recap. Mm-hmm. So you're giving me a platform and I'm really grateful. That's all I can say. Um, <laughs> okay, I saw Power of the Dog, Jane Campion movie. I'm a huge Campion head, love her. But I will say that I am sick of Benedict Cumberbatch playing queer characters. I saw him in the imitation game. Pew, truly- pew, 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 pew. Thanks. <laughs> One of the worst movies I've ever seen. Imitation Game? Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. I didn't think it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Julia, what? I don't know. I thought it was the- like... I thought it was fine. <laughs> the way they like disney that story and then like oh, end... Oh, yeah. And yeah, then- that is... And the... Well, the, the afterward, the text afterward... And that was... What we now call computers. Yeah. One of the stupidest things I've ever... I was just like, this is horrifying. So, Imitation Game is about Alan Turing, uh, who is credited as like basically being the person who essentially invented computers. Uh, and he was gay, and he was castrated by the British... Horrifying. 
I said horrible. Horrible. <laughs> it was really horrible. He was, yeah, chemically castrated um, by the state in the UK when being gay was considered not only illegal, but a medical condition. Um, and so it's like a very... I I do agree with the disnification of it, certainly. Um, but what you and I were talking about, I... The reason why I don't like it when... Benedict Cumberbatch is straight. I think that's important. Benedict um, Cumberbatch is straight. Obviously, acting is not... You know, acting is pretending, sure. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. about, like, embodying someone else. Yes. But at its core, I do not... I don't think of it as just, like, a representational thing or an identity thing. I genuinely think that... These jobs, these big jobs should go to gay actors who have been marginalized for how long? Same thing with trans actors. Even Eddie Redmayne came out a week or two ago saying, I made the Danish girl with the best intentions, but ultimately I I shouldn't have. And he like won an Oscar oh no he won an Oscar for the theory of everything but he was nominated for an Oscar no but But yeah all these roles get like I mean you know you have it's kind of like become Oscar bait for a straight or cis actor to play a gay or trans role you know Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club um yeah Eddie Redmayne but like we were saying like and like my my friend actually is the one who like brought this point up to me where she was like it's the same thing as like Charlize Theron like winning the Oscar when she like puts on like a fat suit or whatever and it's or like uh, I forget what she did to transform she, herself she just like that. she just gained she like ate more ice cream than she usually does and gained and they're weight. like wow that is a real incredible transformation <laughs> like do you know what I'm saying it's like it's like the thing that's being like like it's a it's an old tradition in the Oscars, right? Like Dustin Hoffman wins for play, playing someone with autism or what have you, right? It's the idea of like somebody playing someone really different than themselves. Mm-hmm. But what it also means is like, wow, that identity is so different. And yeah, and it's like, yeah. And I mean, there's a whole history of people, of actors playing mentally handicapped people. Um, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Oscar nomination, uh tom hanks and forrest gump obviously he won an oscar for that um but also yeah like this role was a beautiful role the one that ben and benedict acted it great like no you know whatever but i'm just like wow wouldn't it be so cool for like a queer person to have like a role like that and like really explore all these like really nuanced interesting like i also things i so i was a huge fan of the book call me by your name yeah um the book is absolutely incredible if you've only seen the movie i'm so sorry the book is so much better and part of the reason is because army hammer didn't want to do like more graphic sex scenes it just didn't feel like i mean i think that timothy chalamet could have remained in in his role because he, he is, is like, so good in it. He's it's so crazy. Good. He's so good. And he's like, I consider him like basically queer Jason. <laughs> um, he yeah. went to LaGuardia High School. Like I, that counts. <laughs> that counts. Um, so, but it's like, 
it does affect the movie. There is another side to this argument, of course, which is, you know, you know, we had all those examples of people playing, um, actors playing non-neurotypical people or neurodivergent people, whatever. And the pendulum has swung so far that now there was a lot of backlash to that movie that Sia made called, which was, I think, called Music. Um, and it was centered around like a nonverbal autistic character played by Maddie Ziegler, who is obviously neurotypical. Um, but, uh, my boyfriend talked about this, um, has a podcast co- about autism cause his brother is autistic. Um, and he, they talked about this and, um, my boyfriend's brother is verbal, but still like pretty, pretty, has pretty severe autism and even someone with he, so he is more quote unquote neurotypical than someone who is nonverbal. So the idea that and that a character like that should be played by it just couldn't happen. It couldn't a yeah. nonverbal autistic person could not play, play that role a role. And even someone with less severe autism, like my boyfriend's brother, he couldn't. He can't. He can't count. He can't like. At a certain point, there are, like obviously there are two there are two sides to this issue, and I think that that the backlash that that movie received, Sia's movie received, was a little misplaced. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, but I think like the main point is like I would like to see more like like this wouldn't even be a conversation if you ever saw a gay person win an Oscar for playing a straight role. You know? Yeah. Like it's it's like that simple. And again, like it's not like it's the end of the world. But I just like watched the movie and I was I just thought about like how like Jane Campion I think is like the way that she like uses frames as like paintings and like people's faces to like she's just like such a beautiful lyrical filmmaker and the points that she like the way that she frames people's bodies like I was just like thinking about like how I don't know I think it would probably be really moving. For a queer actor to play this like really interesting role and be framed in this way and mm-hmm. like I don't know but also it's fine and also I don't really like Benedict Cumberbatch I think is like another thing <laughs> I just don't like him well uh yeah I mean the the only way that queer actors have been winning Oscars for playing straight characters is because they have they're not out like right. Jodie Foster right yeah. She's, gay. <laughs> She's gay. Well, you know what? There's a really good chance that that uh, that um, Ariana Devo- DeVos and Kristen Stewart are going to potentially win Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, and they're both queer. Oh, yeah. And actually, I... they you know what? They're playing straight characters. Oh, my God. Did I just undo my own argument? Maybe. I do. Well, yeah, and... I think that it is a little bit more, um, I actually do think for actresses, it's a little bit more flexible, um, like queer actresses. I think it is a little bit more flexible, but I think that like so many gay men were not out for so long because they would never be, like most of the roles are for straight men and they 
feared not being cast because they wouldn't be cast. Like, I don't know. No, true. True. Okay, I have one more hot take and then we'll both be set free if you'd like. Which is, for the longest time, like, cute alternative Latinx girls have been calling themselves brujas. That's been, like, the vibe for the years. And I think this next year is going to be the year of the pachasas. I think... (laughs) I think sad hot clown girls are coming... are coming are coming for your necks <laughs> I'm just, well it's the same as like you know like all the girls were calling themselves witches after trump was elected i think like biden's gonna bring the clown girls is that what that means what bruja is witch okay and pachasa is clown <laughs> and i for one i'm really excited about clown like i much more identify with clown than clown witch. girl summer <laughs> okay yeah clown girl summer what, like you've heard it here first <laughs> yeah for sure like okay do you feel more witch or more clown oh uh, cl- i'm a clown i mean yeah that makes sense <laughs> that's why i i get so mad at like really self-serious comedians who are like like tell it like it is comedian i'm like we are clowns <laughs> we are court jesters we make no money most of us but it's like if you take yourself too seriously, get out. Well, I think we're not philosophers; we're clowns. I think it's your year, Julia. I think it's clown wow. girl, clown girl time. So <laughs> that's very uh, funny and uh, good to know. I like this trend forecast, um, Antonia. I I have learned so much about. <laughs> Uh, radio and podcasting and all of the intricacies therein and I thank you so much for your hot takes and all of your information where can people find you I'm thank you Julia this has been so fun I really I'm like very appreciative I was like I have things I need to say by the end of this year and I don't have a a place to say them and I'm grateful they're here now forever they're emblazoned in this podcast uh, so exciting um i'm on twitter at antonia city so my first name and then c-e-r-e and um look out for all the elias shows that are coming out next year they're gonna be amazing i really do recommend everyone listen to all of the the shows that antonia has worked on but i really loved norco 80 um I think it's I think it's something that a lot of our listeners would find super interesting. Um, yeah, to, please write nice comments and say that the way I say my name rules. Yeah. <laughs> wow, she sounds really hot. Uh, <laughs> like the hot, hot clown girl she is. Hot clown girl. That's it. That's what we need. Hot clown girl. Hot sad clown. Antonia, thank you so much for your time and uh all of your knowledge and you're the best we'll see you soon besitos bye Bye. thank you so much for listening to reply guys if you like the show please rate and review us on apple podcasts and subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers journalists and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week the show is hosted by kate willett and me julia claire Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. 
Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.